Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, avid KUOW listeners know journalist Maria Inahosa as the longtime host of the NPR program Latino USA. It airs on Tuesday nights at 11. She is also the founder and CEO of the Futuro Media Group, which produces the program. Inahosa and her team have been reporting on how Latinos and Hispanics experience and impact the United States since 1992. That ethnic group accounted for more than half of the total U.S. population growth from 2000 to 2014. The Pew Research Center predicts they will make up 24% of the population here by 2065. In addition to her prolific work as a journalist and media leader, Inahosa is also the author of two books, Raising Raul, Adventures Raising Myself and My Son, and Cruz, Gang Members Talk to Maria Inahosa. She gave this talk, Testing the Limits of Due Process Denial, Latinos and Immigrants as the Canaries in the Mine, at the University of Washington's Kane Hall, on November 1st, 2017. Here, Yvette Moy, UW's Director of Public Lectures, introduces the program. The Graduate School six-part series on equity and difference will focus on rights. Who has them, who doesn't? Who needs them? And why it's important to fight for them? And we're here tonight because of a generous gift to the University of Washington. The Marianne and John D. Mangles Endowed Lecture Series was established in 1990 to honor the retirement of John D. Mangles, former chairman and CEO at Security Pacific Bank of Washington, which is now Bank of America. Administered by the Graduate Opportunities and Minority Achievement Program, or GOMAP, um, the Mangles Lectureship in cooperation with academic departments and programs brings to the University of Washington campus minority scholars or individuals whose work focuses on issues of diversity from a variety of fields for the benefit of minority students, the campus community, and the general public. Taking the lead on recruitment and retention of minority graduate students, GoMap is nationally recognized for its unique and innovative efforts in mentoring, networking, and professional development of our students. Through experiences rich in cultural diversity, GoMap fosters an inclusive graduate community in which all students can learn and develop the skills to participate in academic, civic, and professional endeavors. Congratulations for all the work that you do, GoMap. You make our, our campus community stronger and more inclusive. Tonight's speaker, Maria Hinojosa, will be introduced by Associate Dean of Diversity and Student Affairs, Gino Eisenberg. Good evening. Good evening. Buenas, noches. Buenas noches. Thank you for joining us. As Yvette stated, I'm Gino Eisenberg, and I'm very pleased to be with you here tonight to introduce tonight's speaker, Maria Hinojosa. Her presence among us here at the University of Washington is really the fruit of multiple departments across the university, who nominated her to be one of the, the public lecturers, and we're very grateful. For 25 years, Maria Hinojosa has helped tell America's untold stories and brought to light 
unsung heroes in America and abroad. In April of 2010, Maria Hinojosa launched the Futura Media Group with a mission to produce multi-platform, community-based journalism that gives critical voice to the voiceless by harnessing the power of independent media to tell stories that are overlooked or ignored by traditional media. As the anchor and executive producer of the long-running weekly NPR show Latino USA, and as anchor of the Emmy Award-winning talk show Maria Hinojosa, one-on-one, -on -one, Maria has informed millions of Americans about the fastest growing population in our country, Latinos. Previously a senior correspondent for now on PBS, and currently a rotating anchor for Need to Know, Maria Hinojosa has reported hundreds of important stories, from immigrant work camps in New Orleans after Katrina, to teen girl adolescents, victims of sexual harassment on the job, to Emmy award-winning stories of the poor in Alabama. Maria Hinojosa has won top honors in American journalism throughout her career. In 2009, she was honored with an AWRT Gracie Award for Individual Achievement as Best TV Correspondent. In 2010, she was awarded an honorary degree, Doctor of Humane Letters by DePaul University in Chicago, as well as the Sidney Hillman Prize honoring her social and economic justice reporting. In 2012, she additionally received an honorary degree from Simmons College, named among the 25 Latinos in contemporary American culture by the Huffington Post, and gave the prestigious Ware Lecture. In 2013, Maria Hinojosa taught at DePaul University as the Sor Juana Inez de la Cruz Chair of the Latin American and Latino Studies Program. Throughout her career, Maria Hinojosa has helped define the conversation about our times and our society with one of the most authentic voices in broadcast. I come open to listen to Maria tonight, but also to be challenged. I come very respectful, not just to listen, not just to be inspired, but also to act. Maria was born in Mexico City, raised in Chicago and received her BA from Bernard College. Please join me in welcoming Maria Hinojosa. Thank you. Well, hello, Seattle. Yes. <clears throat> Gee, I don't, I don't even want to think about what time it is for me, considering that I just flew in from the East Coast. Not like I'd be in bed at this hour usually. No. Um, anyway, thank you to the university and to everybody involved. I was hearing that um, 
there were lots and lots of people involved. And <clears throat> that always, um, I'm, I'm like, really? <laughs> there were a lot of people who wanted me to come here? Okay. Um, I take every invitation as a kind of special joy, so um, I really appreciate that. I bet the lighting people are not happy now because I'm all the way on the side, though. All right. Okay. So, um, and I was going to do a little bit of walking around, but I think because of the microphone, I won't be able to, so you're stuck with seeing me here. Um, I'll try to make it as entertaining as possible. Um, so, as you know, I'm a journalist. I'm also a storyteller. So I, I tell stories, um, and I'm going to start by telling you a story that just happened. Um, I was um, at home um, this past Saturday morning. Uh, I was meditating. I was actually on my bed meditating in the morning um, when I got a phone call um, on my phone that has the app where I meditate. So um, <clears throat> it's kind of obvious, but I, I usually would have not even cared. I would have not taken the call, but something told me to take the call. Um, it was a call from California, and um, on the other end of the line, somebody said, hello, is this Maria? My name is Susan Burton, and I said, yes, and who are you? And she said, I'm Ms. Burton, and I said, wait a second, you mean from the book, Becoming Ms. Burton? And she said, yes, that's me, and I don't know if any of you have read the book, but um, it's kind of um, a really important book in the conversation around criminal justice reform. Um, Becoming Miss Burton, the author, Miss Burton, um, <clears throat> was, uh, thank you, um, Susan Burton served about 20 years in prison. She was, had a very normal life, um, but when she, her little boy was five years old, she saw him um, die in front of her, and it took her through a tumble, and she started using drugs and then selling drugs. Um, and, um, and she ended up writing a book because since she's come out, she's dedicated her life to helping women and men in reentry. So um, she said to me on the phone, I met your brother. I'm so happy he's coming out of prison. And I said, that's great. He's not really my brother. Um, just to kind of clarify, because I bet you guys were like, what? <laughs> but the person that um, she was talking about, his name is Suave, and Suave has been in prison for 30 years, and I think it's eight months at this point. And um, he's not my brother, even though he does call me his sister. Um, I've met Suave in 1993 when I was asked to go to the prison where he was. It's the fifth largest state prison in the country. It's Greaterford State Prison in Pennsylvania. And I had been asked to go and give a commencement speech for uh, prisoners um, who were graduating from either a high school, a GED, a college, or uh, a tailoring, or learning how to cut hair. So I was giving the commencement speech. And um, in that speech, I talked about how I didn't see a separation between myself and the people who I was addressing. In this case, they were all um, citizens convicted of crimes and serving sentences. Um, and because of my work and family and friends, I've actually, at that time, this was 1993, had actually been in and out of several prisons. So I approached prisons um, 
not with the kind of mysterious of like, oh my God, but rather something that um, happens. And, um, and so when I gave this commencement speech, uh, Suave, who was in the audience, and by that time he had been serving maybe eight years, and Suave was sentenced to life in prison when he was 17 years old. So when I met Suave, and uh, there were a group of, um, of prisoners um, who came to see me, came up to me after I gave the commencement speech, and Suave was one of them. There were several, but Suave was one of them who came up to me and he spoke, and he told me that he had been sentenced to life in prison when he was 17 years old, um, and that uh, he was a lifer. He wasn't gonna get out, and that uh, he hated the prison, and he said, you know, but I was, he said, I felt very inspired by your speech. It's very few people who come here and speak to us like they see us. And he said, what should I do? I'm going to be here for the rest of my life. What should I do? And I said to Suave something that I've said to many, many times, and which I've kind of devoted my career to as a journalist. I said, well, you know what, Suave, you're on the inside. I said, I will never be able to see what you're gonna see from the inside of this prison. You need to be the eyes and ears. You need to be the voice for the voiceless. You, now, you need to tell these stories. And, um, and then uh, Suave wrote to me and then I went back to the prison and I interviewed him again as part of another story. And we developed a I don't call it a relationship because um, I can never call Suave, so it's an experience of two human beings who have contact. Um, I didn't know that saying those words to Suave, Suave, look, you can be the voice for the voiceless, keep your eyes open, let me know, tell me the stories that I need to know about this prison. Um, I didn't know that that, that encounter was gonna change Suave's life. Um, when Suave was sentenced to life in prison as a 17-year-old, he was illiterate. Um, that's why he didn't take the, ble the plea deal that had been offered to him, because he didn't even know what a plea deal was, and he knew that he hadn't committed the crime, he hadn't pulled the trigger, even though he was in the presence of um, the murder. Uh, so he didn't take the plea. Um, and he ended up in solitary for being something of a rebel. And it was in solitary that another prisoner taught him how to read uh, through the cells, starting off with words like cat, dog, mom. Suave um, learns how to read. Suave then ends up getting his GED. And then Suave takes 16 years to get his BE be his BA, and as he likes to say, the best 16 years of my life to get my bachelor's 16 years. Um, he's now in, the, in a master's program. He created a scholarship inside the prison where he would collect money from, um, from the prisoners uh, to create a scholarship fund for a, a young person on the outside. I know, it's like, what? Especially because if you know that if you're inside and you work, you get paid maybe 50 cents an hour. So to donate even a dollar is two hours of work. Um, Suave creates a program called Fathers and Children Together. Fact, even though he has no children, um, he creates a Latino educational program inside. 
And Suave was not coming out. Suave was sentenced to life in prison. But you know, our country has had a fascinating history around criminal justice, complicated, controversial, intense. And as I was writing this, I was thinking, how can I make you know, something, make, make it feel more real to you um, in the sense of how criminal justice and laws around um, criminal justice have changed and impacted us. You know, when I was growing up about a billion years ago, um, yeah, so it was, it was a really long time ago. Um, you know, domestic violence, intimate partner violence was not necessarily considered a crime. It was something that happened behind closed doors that police didn't get involved with. Even rape, sexual harassment, sexual assault, no. Those things were fought by activists, by human beings, by individuals, sometimes just one individual, um, to create laws to protect us. As you know, it was illegal to get an abortion. It was illegal. There was no, no context even to sue for racial discrimination. Um, all of those things are things that were fought for by individuals, people just like you. So now we all know what it is to get Mirandized. Um, although all of us are watching in real time what it looks like to be denied to be read your Miranda rights. Now all of you, if you don't know the Miranda rights, you've all watched Law & Order, you know when the person is arrested and they say, you know, everything you, anything you say can and will be used against you in the court of law if you can't afford an attorney, you're being arrested for this reason. We all know this, right? We take it for granted. That did not exist if it were not for Miranda and the laws that push for us to create the possibility to be Mirandized. So a recent example, for example, is what happened in New York City when for a decade, people of color mostly were being stopped and frisked for no reason. And activists on the ground who saw this as an injustice changed that. It was found to be illegal. Um, we have it now where the, <clears throat> the platform for Black Lives Matter um, is pushing to require protections for people of color when they encounter the police. I tell you all of this because we, um, you know, we again have all watched Law and Order, so we have a certain expectation of how it goes, and we know that law enforcement pushes as much as they possibly can, but they also, we also see the, the limits to which rights can be pushed and how much those rights have to be respected. So, um, so getting back to Suave. So we never thought that Suave was going to get out. And um, again, because of individuals, a scientist, I think, is maybe how it started, who does brain research, really wanted to understand what it is about the adolescent brain. So now all of us know that there is brain research out there that shows that an adolescent brain actually is not fully developed until the ages of about 26. So all of you who are younger than 26, you are all adolescents in terms of your brain. Um, and 
But this was not common science 25 years ago, right, when Suave was sentenced and thousands of juveniles were sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Well, in 2020, in 2012, the Supreme Court rescinded that and declared that it was inhuman to sentence a juvenile to life without the possibility of parole because of the science on adolescent brains. And in 2014, that Supreme Court decision was then open to be applied, like grandfathered in, to all of the juveniles serving life sentences in our country without the possibility of parole. Hence, suave. So, Suave is getting out. In fact, today, here in Seattle, historic and important things always happen to me when I'm in Seattle. They do, I mean, they, they really do. I'm not gonna start naming them. Um, some of them are a little sad, but some of them are kind of amazing. And so today, in my hotel room, Suave called me and he said, I have my date. I'm getting out November 20th. At six o'clock in the morning, they're coming to get me. And I'm getting out, <laughs> which is like, I mean, um, you'll know more about Suave because we're doing an entire documentary about him. Um, because we've been recording our conversations for the last three years with Suave, not knowing if he was ever going to get out. And today was a little uncomfortable for me because um, Suave continued, well, actually he's never quite said it like this, and I'm gonna share it with you because it was really quite shocking, and I told him, I was like, I just put on my makeup! You're gonna make me ruin it, stop this! Because what Suave said was, he said, if you had not said those words to me, to be the voice for the voiceless, he says, I think I would have been dead by now. And I, I, I said, come on, Suave. He said, Maria, you gave me those words which opened my brain, and because of that, everything changed. And then he said, and after you met me, you sent me a Christmas card every year. Every year I knew it was gonna come. He says, I have them all collected. And so he said, so you saved my life. I would be dead if it wasn't for you, he repeated again. And I just like, uh. Because as I said to him, kind of yelling back at the finally, I said, Suave, no, now you have to be quiet, I said, because you know what, Suave? Okay, I'll take the credit for those words that I said. But I said, you were the one who walked up to me after I gave that commencement speech. You were the one that walked up to me and asked to speak with me. So you have to own your own power. And that's part of the theme of my speech today is that if anything I wanna leave you with is that it is in our own hands. It is in your hands and the things that we do and maybe take for granted because I never knew that me saying those words to Suave could potentially change his life. And all of us, that person, that scientist who uncovered that research around the adolescent brain that then teams of people took to the Supreme Court, those were not superhuman beings. They were just like you and me. So today Suave 
Suave did get emotional. It was an emotional call. I did get emotional. But in all of the years that I've known Suave, there's only been once when Suave has cried. And it was when he called into one of my classes at DePaul University, where I was teaching a class around um, um, the immigration and uh, criminal uh, industrial complex. And Suave was talking about what he's, because he's been there for 30 years, so he knows everything that has been happening in Greaterford Prison for 30 years. Uh, and he said, the people who are being treated the worst now are the immigrants, the ones who come and they don't speak English, the Mexicans, the Guatemaltecos, the Hondureños, all of them, they're treated the worst. He said, do you know, they have to, they force them to clean the entire block, um, which Suave says is the length of a football field. That's where all of the cells are. And they have to clean the entire block in order to get an extra plate of food. And he said, you know what they call them inside the prison? And this is when he started crying. He said, they call them the new black. I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, well, it used to be that black folks were the ones who had to do that to get a meal. Now, it's the immigrants, it's the Latinos. They are, in essence, the new lowest ones on the totem pole. And this caused Suave to cry. Which leads me to that phone call with Ms. that Ms. Burton made on Saturday morning. Because when we were talking about this and she was saying how, she, um, how important she understood I had been for Suave because I had just been there, a presence. Again, I, not a relationship, you can't call this person. It's not as if I'm gonna call Suave to start complaining about my life when he's sentenced to life in prison. So um, he said, she said, you know, um, this experience that you have with Suave is really important. It's transformed his life. Um, and then I explained to her this thing about Suave sharing this information about the new black. And she said, Miss Burton said, oh yeah, we have a word for that. It's called crimigration. How many of you had heard that word before? Okay, so like less than a dozen of you. I think I had heard it before too, but it's like it really settled in on Saturday morning, crimigration. You know, this idea that essentially all immigrants are all potential criminals, or that we simply are criminals, that we don't belong here, that this thing about being an immigrant country is a thing of the past. I mean, we're living it with the attack that happened in New York City yesterday, and may the victims rest in peace. Um, but you already saw it, right? Immediately, because this person was not born in the United States, immediately the whole conversation has now gone to restricting visas, to restricting immigrants, and the conversation again. I could not believe what I was hearing on CNN, on the plane right over here. We're just hearing mainstream media journalists who have no experience whatsoever covering immigrant communities or immigration law or immigration policies, all falling into step with President Trump saying, we've got to get rid of this lottery system.
You know, he also used other choice words today. Animal, of course. An animal, again, referring to somebody who committed a horrible crime. But the animal part, I don't know. Is it because he wasn't born in this country? Did we hear him say those words about the Las Vegas shooter? You know, immigrants, the narrative is, we're scary, we're foreign, we're takers, we're abusers, we're criminals. So what happened yesterday with this alleged shooter is that because he's considered a foreign terrorist, he was not Mirandized. So when he was taken into custody, even though he was shot, he was not Mirandized. He was not told that anything he said could be used against him. He was not told that he could have access to a lawyer. And, and this bothered me deeply. And I want to share with you that I am a journalist who lived through September 11th. I covered that story. Not only did I cover that story for an entire year every single day while I was at CNN, I developed PTSD. So after 9-11, I actually said and felt things that I now am shocked by, because I lived through it. I know what that shock and fear looks like. As I was writing this, I said, am I going to say this? And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to say this because I'm honest with you. There was a moment when I was, I remember somebody coming into my office, must have been less than 10 days after 9-11, and, and they were just like, can you believe that they're going to start racially profiling? And I just said, racially profile everybody. Me. So it's precisely because someone like me could think that way that I understand people's reaction, but that I'm so thankful to people who say, can we come back to the basis of our laws and due process, right? Because that is what our country is based on. And yes, there, we can talk about immigration separately, it's complicated. Immigration laws specifically and the discrepancy around there, around those laws. But I don't know. I mean, are we afraid about that shooter getting a lawyer? The man who committed this crime yesterday? Uh, do we not trust that a jury can actually judge him? Are we afraid of that? Of course, we lived through this after September 11th. Many of you are probably too young to remember, you know, because it was just about 16 years ago, but it was about 15 years ago that you may not remember when our government required that immigrants who were from predominantly Muslim countries had to register with the federal government, actually had to register. A year before 9-11, I was on the U.S.-Mexico border witnessing people almost dying of thirst trying to get into this country. A year after 9-11, I'm on the U.S.-Canadian border and I'm witnessing people running to get to the northern border to get out of our country in the freezing cold because these were people who were afraid. Maybe they had overstayed their visas they were afraid that they were going to get deported. They were rushing to ask for asylum in Canada. So we have been here before. We have been here like the night that I was on the U.S.-Mexico border that year before 
And the Border Patrol was doing their, um, they're very nice, they do very good dog and pony shows for those of us in the media. They make sure that we get to see what it really looks like. So we were on a, on a Border Patrol mission and um, they, it was nine o'clock at night. We had actually been on the mission for about um, six hours. We hadn't found any people yet, but um, suddenly they heard some crackle on the walkie-talkie and we took off and um, my, the Border Patrol guy took off, my cameraman, I was doing this for CNN, took off, my producer took off, and I, of course, was um, wearing high heels. <clears throat> they were very cute boots. Um, so I was, you know, running a little bit slower than most, plus I'm a midget, so it takes me longer to get any place. Um, so I caught, I, I, I came upon the scene just a little bit after um, the men had been caught. It was about a dozen men from, uh, from Mexico at that time uh, who had been caught by the Border Patrol. And they were in shock. It was, you know, they were in the middle of the desert. There were lights on them. My cameraman was filming them. I, I ran up, you know, just basically saying, we're journalists. We're not the Border Patrol. We're journalists. Please trust us. Can we talk to you? And running out of breath with my high-heeled boots, I end up sitting, because they were all sitting, right in front of one of the men who had just been caught. And you know what he said to me? He took his water that he was crossing the border with to make it through the desert. He said, ¿Quiere mi agua, señorita? Do you want my water? Do you need my water? I see that you're out of breath. You know, those social skills that we bring us, we bring with us, us immigrants, that you don't know about unless you listen to Latino USA, those social skills that are never talked about in this narrative, respeto, respect, human affection, humanity, gratitude, humility, servitude. In our schools, you have heard this statistic that immigrant children come in with lesser reading skills because we don't have English language children's books in our homes and that somehow we are less than when we walk into that kindergarten class. But what you don't hear about is all of the social skills that those children walk in with. Skills like um, being able to share with other kids, respect for the teacher, respect for the school, the actual building, a capacity to collaborate, a capacity to share, a capacity to be affectionate. Those are the social skills that the narrative denies us of. So why I do the work that I do is to try to impact this narrative. Why? Because actually since September 11th, our newsrooms have become less diverse. I know you didn't know that either. Since September, our mainstream newsrooms have become less diverse than they were before 9-11, even though our demographics, as you know, are increasingly more and more diverse. So the story of change, the story actually of all of this demographic change, the story of immigrants, um, is problematic because we have newsrooms that are predominantly white, predominantly run by men some of who've been having some real problems recently. <laughs> and 
and we'll put that one over here. <laughs> but I want to give you an example now. I want to move very specifically into what crimmigration looks like and the theme of this talk today, which is how due process is being tested or the denial of due process is being tested on the backs of people whose only difference between you and them is the fact that they weren't born in this country. And that would include me, except for the fact that I became an American citizen in the late 1980s. And up until now, I'm not sure that they can rescind my citizenship, but yet. Um, okay, so when we started working on the Frontline documentary that was gonna look at the whole kind of detention deportation monster, um, first of all, we were simply denied access to the detention camps, and I don't call them detention centers. That's a very tame name for what they are. They're detention camps. But we were simply denied access, um, which is one way of denying due process to journalists, right? You just deny access. Um, probably something else you didn't know. More money is spent on immigration, detention, deportation, and enforcement than all other federal law enforcement agencies combined. I'll repeat that. More money is spent on immigration, detention, deportation, and enforcement than all other law and federal law enforcement agencies combined. FBI, um, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms, the Justice Department police, all of that combined. More is being spent on immigration detention. The greatest profit being made now from private prison industries, from the private prison industry, is because of immigration detention. Right. They have got to keep the beds full in order to make a profit. So when you think about private prison industry, the only way they make money is to keep a body in the cell. The only way they make a profit off of immigrants in detention is to keep them in detention for as long as possible, as many people as possible. Now, these restrictive immigration laws actually started under a Democratic administration, signed into law in 1996 by President Bill Clinton. And they became intensified after 9-11 with George W. Bush. After 9-11, the narrative was, we've got to go and hunt them down, these foreigners. The, the narrative again is that they are terrorists, that they are lawbreakers, that they are an illegal people. So let's take a pause here for that conversation around the term illegal, right? Um, there is no such thing as an illegal human being, right? Now, I didn't learn that from a radical Latino Latin American studies professor at Barnard College in New York City. Um, actually, I learned it from Elie Wiesel, who survived the Holocaust. And when I met Elie Wiesel, what he said to me, he said, the first thing the, Jew the Nazis did was to declare the Jews to be an illegal people. That was how the Holocaust started. So to declare an immigrant to be an illegal human being, it's the beginning of the dehumanization process. And by the way, that would be the equivalent of like all of you who have had a traffic violation when you've been driving, I know that. That would mean that you would all now be called illegal drivers, right? Because 
you committed a crime when you were driving. So you're now an illegal driver. If you're a parent that failed to pay your alimony, you would be forever an illegal father. Or if you're a taxpayer that forgot to pay your taxes, you would be forever an illegal taxpayer. No, you're a taxpayer who committed a crime. You're a driver who committed a crime. You're an immigrant who committed a crime. By the way, crossing the border without documentation is a misdemeanor. It has become criminalized only in the last decade so that if you come back, now it is a felony. You're caught once and you come back to see your children, you are now a felon. But that's the reason why we don't use the term illegal in my newsroom. And that's the, term why, that's the reason why I created my own newsroom so I could make these kinds of decisions. We don't refer to human beings as illegal. That's right, because I'm the boss. I'm the boss. That was the whole idea. And I'm a pretty cool boss, you know, la pequeña jefa, because I'm a shorty. Um, <clears throat> but in my newsroom, we don't use the term illegal to describe a human being. We also don't use the term minority. I'm not a minority. I don't see myself as a minority. I've never told my kids that they are minorities. So that is, and by the way, as we know, the demographic data shows who the minority will be in our country soon. So do we really want to be using that term, or do we really want to redefine that term? Thank you for those applause, right? All right, but getting back to the term illegal, right, and the issue of denial, denying due process. So because they are an illegal people, they don't deserve equal treatment under the law, which is, in fact, untrue in our country. And I want to lay out the scenario for what it looks like when ICE is getting ready to do these encounters, what we witnessed when we were filming the Frontline documentary. So they gather the night before. Uh, what time is it? Yep. So right about now, you have immigration agents. Um, actually, they're asleep, and they're going to be waking up because their shift will be starting at about 3 in the morning. Um, somewhere around 4 or 5 in the morning, they'll be gathering in some undisclosed location like the parking lot of a Burger King, where they will be making a plan of um, going in to um, detain immigrants from the long list that they have of immigrants who um, uh, may have committed a crime, um, a petty crime, perhaps 20 years ago. So I'm going to actually give you this scenario of the case that we witnessed, which is another basic denial of due process, again, tested on the backs of people whose only difference between you and them is that they weren't born in this country. So one of the basics of law in this country is what? Double jeopardy. We understand that. You cannot be tried twice for the same crime. It's just part of who we are in this country, kind of like the First Amendment. Well, in the case of this Jamaican immigrant who we met, um, who had a green card. So this notion that the people who are in these immigration detention camps are just people without papers? No, they are filled with people with green cards. So I'm sorry to say, if you have a green card, it does not offer you much protection right now. I would urge you, if you have no interaction with the police, to, become, to begin your process of becoming an American citizen immediately. The green card provides you with no protection, I'm sorry to say, as someone who lived with one for 28 years. So this is a case of a Jamaican man 
who when he came um, with a green card, as a kid growing up in New York City, um, when he was around 18 or 19 years old, he's a punk. He's got an adolescent brain. He's selling some drugs on the street in the Bronx. He gets caught. He serves a year and a half for the petty crime of selling drugs. Um, and since then, what would have happened in the mid-1980s, he had been clean, living with his green card in the Bronx, taking care of his mother and his wife. Well. On one of these nights, immigration agents came up with their list and decided they were going to go and get him from a housing project that he lived, at, lived in in the Bronx, and they took him. Even though he had already been tried and convicted and served for that crime, because he had a green card, he was taken for having committed that crime. He was put into a detention camp on the border, a place called Willacy in Raymondville, Texas, and there this man who actually had suffered and been diagnosed as bipolar had no mental health support at all. He was brutalized. He witnessed um, uh, fights. He witnessed, um, uh, they're not corrections officers, but the people, the guards inside the immigration camp um, beating people, um, hearing about rapes. He, um, he was deeply depressed. And so what did they do? Well, they over-medicated him, put him to sleep for 36 hours, so bad that he fell off of his bunk, which was about at this level, literally just rolled off, could not, did not even know because he was so heavily drugged that he broke his part of this bone here and actually broke a testicle. And it was because of all of this and his complaints um, and his threats to bring this to light, that he was released, and we interviewed him. And he had already been tried and served for the crime that he had committed, a way in which due process is denied, basic due process is denied. Okay, so back to the night before, what they're getting ready to do tonight here in Seattle and in cities and towns all across the United States tonight, on nights like tonight, um, they will be wearing uniforms that misidentify who they are. Basic issue of due process, know which law enforcement agency you're dealing with. In fact, it is illegal to impersonate law enforcement officers. But what are they wearing? They are wearing hats that say police in big letters. They're wearing jackets that say police in big letters and police in big letters, and in smaller letters it says ICE. They are not police. It is illegal for them to be identifying themselves as police. They do not arrest people. In fact, they detain people because these are not criminals. These are immigrants who have a civil charge, and yet they are treated as if they're criminals. So misidentifying themselves as police, it's kind of as if, like, um, you know, you get a knock on your door and you find somebody there that has a police uniform and you're like, my God, it's the police, I have to let them in. And then all of a sudden they're like, haha, we're not the police, we're actually the IRS and you didn't pay your taxes, we're taking you. And you'd be just like, what, what just happened? Or they'd come to your door, 
with outfits saying that they're police and they'd come in and they'd say, ha ha, we're not police, we're actually social service and we're taking your kids away because of et cetera, et cetera. It's like, that doesn't, that's not the way it's supposed to go in our country. That is the way it goes in our country, day after day after day. And because of the shame of what we are living through in this country, it's not as if you're having people come to this campus and say, let me tell you what happened to my mom last night. She was detained by ICE. So there is so much shame that we're not even talking about this. So what do they do? They arrive at your home, they, they meet in this nondescript parking lot someplace, they're all, you know, like in riot gear with police everywhere. They arrive at your door at 6 a.m. and they're banging on your door like that. So you're just like startled. You don't know what's going on. You wake up, you're in your pajamas, and they basically say to you, hey, um, and all you can see is the police, right? And they just say, hey, we, you know, can we come in? We'd rather not talk about this on your front doorstep and make a scene for your neighbors to see. And of course, you're like, well, OK, come on in. And the second that they come in with no warrant, then they can ask anyone in that house for their papers. No Miranda, no explanation of what is going happen, of what is happening at that moment. So I don't know, what do you think about the fact that right now there are innocent people being held by our government? who don't know where they are, who don't know why, they've been why they're being held, how long they're going to be held, how to get out, and the fact that they don't have an access to a lawyer. What do you think about that? That on a daily basis, we have people being held in our country who I have spoken to and asked them, do you know why you're here and when you might get out? And they say, no. No, they won't let me go. I want to go home. OK, I came without papers, but I want to go home. They won't even release me to go home. How do you feel about the fact that that is happening in your country on a daily, nightly basis? How do you feel about the fact that it is common sense now, knowledge among immigrants, that when they are detained by the Border Patrol and put into those immigration camps, that the first place that they're put into is a place commonly known as La Yelera, which means the icebox. That this is common. That people whose only crime is that they are crossing without papers, and the first place that they are put when they are detained is into a place that is known as the icebox because it is so cold there. And you're sweating because you've just been in the desert, and you have nothing except for a t-shirt and they put you into La Yelera. And everybody who has come into this country and been held in one of these places knows about La Yelera. And it's been happening for years and years and years. How do you prove that that's torture? There's no marks on you. That is happening on a daily, nightly basis in our country. How do you feel about the fact that there are no legally binding standards for how they are held? the conditions under which they are held, how much they are fed, how much sunlight they are given, how much recreation, if they have access to books, to a movie, to a bathroom, to a pad when you're a woman having a period. There are no legally binding standards for immigrants who are held in our immigration detention camps 
There are recommendations. But if you're a private prison company, you'll take those recommendations and you're going to be looking at one thing only, which is your bottom line. So actually, compared to the Bureau of Prisons, the official Bureau of Prisons for criminals, criminals get much better treatment in the Bureau of Prisons. You know exactly what you are legally entitled to in terms of food portions, your legal rights. You don't have that if you're an immigrant. So in that place that I saw when we were shooting the front line, um, these are tents. They're like, they look like circus tents, which means that they have no windows. They're usually held, they're created to hold people for one or two days max. And these were people who were being held in there for months and up to years with no windows. And actually the window area was, was gar, um, cordoned off and if you tried to get close to the window, you would be written up just for trying to look out the window as an immigrant. The complaint box was locked. There was no way to slip a note into the complaint box. Um, there was no color anywhere. There was no meat. In fact, I, um, when we were touring a separate uh, detention camp in Eloy, Arizona, and I asked to see the um, the walk-in. Well, this isn't in the desert. They were showing us the food that they serve the detainees every day. There was uh, chicken, and um, I had heard that they rarely get chicken, only on the days when they're outside visitors, like journalists or human rights um, investigators, is when they would get meat. So um, I asked to see the walk-in freezer. And the walk-in freezer was, I don't know, maybe twice the size of this desk here to feed 1,500 men and women frozen meat every day? No. So every time immigrants call me, I ask them, what did you eat today? And it usually goes something like this. Soupy rice, soupy rice, soupy rice. No fresh water. <clears throat> the water all is that kind of sulfury water. No talking. One of the young people who we reported on, when they stood up on their, um, in the lunchroom to give out the numbers of immigration lawyers, they were put into solitary confinement just for doing what we believe we have the right to do. In another story that we covered, recently just won the Robert F. Kennedy Award for our reporting on the death of one immigrant in the Eloy detention camp in Eloy, Arizona. Jose de Jesus, who was taken into custody, or taken into detention rather, and three days later he dies by committing suicide while he is on suicide watch. And he commits suicide by swallowing his sock. That's right. I said the same thing. I said, that's impossible. That's humanly impossible. No. We got the videotape. We saw it. We saw the fact that they could have saved his life. But for the fact that Jose de Jesus was on his stomach gagging in his private suicide watch cell, and they took seven minutes 
to get into the cell because first they had to go find one of those um, shields that they use, for the riot protector shields, and they had to have 10 men ready to go in because this is a dangerous, illegal human being who's lying there gagging, unable to move, so you take seven minutes. And the first thing you do after you put the shield on top of him while he's gagging is you handcuff him. And then you realize, oh, he's like dying. Maybe we need to unhandcuff him. And in that process of just the handcuffing and unhandcuffing are the last three minutes of Jose de Jesus's life. And all he wanted was a phone call to talk to his family, to let them, let him hear their voice, to know that everything was going to be okay. Holding immigrants in these detention camps presents the perfect opportunity for a crime committed to then be hidden because your victims are all immigrants who when they complain, you simply put them on a plane and deport them. So the allegations of rape, even allegations of women becoming pregnant because of rapes, people who are beaten and assaulted, problem solved is you just put them on a plane and deport them. In our country today, little Rosa Maria Hernandez is 10 years old, has cerebral palsy, and just a few days ago, her parents, undocumented, she's also undocumented, she's been living here her entire life, um, immigration agents follow them from the checkpoint outside of Corpus Christi, Texas, follow them into the hospital, and then take the little girl from the hospital and put her into a detention camp for children in San Antonio, where they are preparing her deportation, along with her parents. This is not pretend, mis queridos. This is real. Real that I spoke with Estrella, a transgender woman who was in court in El Paso, filing for a protective order from her abusive partner who had beaten her, tried to light her on fire, and then taken her to the railroad tracks to leave her to be run over by a train. In fact, she was able to prove all of this, so she gets the order of protection in the courtroom in El Paso. And right after she gets the order of protection, there are plainclothes immigration agents who take her out of the courthouse into an unmarked car. Plain clothes, immigration agents, and an unmarked car from a courthouse. This is happening in our country today. So all of us have to be the eyes and ears. All of us have to have that capacity to be the voice for the voiceless. Because I have just laid out for you what is factually true and happening on a daily basis in our country. And at a point when we are now being talked about like animals and how laws have to be created to move us out of the country as fast as possible, who really cares about talking about the denial of due process? There's only one other 
politician in the country that's actually talking about this, and he's the mayor of Los Angeles who's talking about the fact that it's illegal for these agents to misrepresent who they are by wearing outfits that say police. Other than that, no one's talking about it. So I want to say thank you for asking me to come here to speak on this topic. It brings me no joy to do this. It brings me rather a tremendous amount of sadness. But here's what I'm going to leave you with. As I travel across the country, um, and I've been traveling basically nonstop for the last six weeks, and actually most recently to southern Utah and then to Oregon, um, I'm incredibly inspired by you. So the fact that you have asked me to come here to speak to you is what makes me love my country even more. Because you made that decision. You could have chosen anyone to hear from, and you wanted to hear from me someone who is probably more unlike you than anyone else. That decision that you made is decision, the decision that makes me love my country even more today. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. It's okay. You can sit down. We can talk. Thank you. I appreciate that. I, I, I appreciate the love. Um, so let's talk. This is a time for you to ask questions. Um, so raise your hand. And I'll ask you. Or else I could do what a professor does and I could start. Yes. How long has this been going on? How long has this been going on? Um, love the song. Uh, <laughs> I know, I love the song. Um, safely 10 years. At this level, at this level of intensity, 10 years. Um, Willacy was built in 2006 um, in the ramp up. Uh, when, when they kind of, when the connection was finally made of like, oh my gosh, we can actually detain, whoa, we can actually detain, hi, all the way up there, um, we can actually detain people um, and make money off of it. So, um, so that basically ramped up around 2005. But you know, <laughs> the first story that I won an award for in, what would it have been? It would have been it would have been 1987, 86. Um, was when I was reporting with Scott Simon about the immigration detention camps holding Central Americans who were fleeing from war. Um, but there were they were not filled like this, and they, the treatment was bad. But it wasn't this level of de inhumanity. But it's been going on for a long time. And, and part of the problem, as I said, is that we can't, we can't, they won't let us in. They just won't let, I mean, the journalists, we just can't get in. Eloy, we tried to get in uh, recently, and they just said, ha ha, Maria Hinojosa will never be allowed into Eloy ever again. So she can even stop, stop asking. I'm not going to stop asking. But that's basically, they have the prerogative, because it's a privately run company. Oh, we have microphones. 
Okay, they're over here. There's one on either side. There's one on either side. Okay, over there. So if you can, yeah, get to the microphone. Thank you. I've never shot it be first. Thank you for coming. Um, what do you think about sanctuary cities and the policy of non-cooperation? Is this effective? And if not, what would you recommend for our city? So, you know, the sanctuary cities um, conversation is really complicated. Um, and I'm thinking mostly about like the sanctuary campus dynamic. For example, there are some universities that are actively choosing not to declare themselves as sanctuary because then that way they don't have to keep records. And it's a way of protecting undocumented students. Some say that if you declare sanctuary, then you're saying we have undocumented students and we have a record of who they are. Um, I mean, I think at this point, it, the local response is gonna be so important. So, <clears throat> so, it's, so I guess what I'm trying to say is, I appreciate the local response to what is happening on the ground and the, and the very delicate relationship between immigrant communities and law enforcement. Um, and how we need to have these communities feel protected by law enforcement, which they don't. Um, on the other hand, uh, I think that we're gonna, there are gonna be legal challenges to this. We know this. And so we need cities to be prepared. Um, I, you know, that story when we were on the border covering and I said I was on the border before 9-11 watching people die of thirst trying to get into the country. We were actually doing the story about the sanctuary movement of the year 2000. We were going back to report on sanctuary efforts, very low key. And no one wanted to talk about it because they understood that they could be charged federally as a, with a felony. So I think that what's happening and what's probably going to happen is that there's going to be a lot of sanctuary that is occurring that is not necessarily talked about. Um, you know, I, I actually couldn't watch the whole movie. I started trying to watch The Zookeeper's Wife, um, which is a, a, somebody who gave sanctuary to, to Jews, I believe, in Poland. Um, and so this was just an individual who was helping. And I, I wonder whether or not that's something that we're going to start seeing more of and something that, again, all of you can be talking about in your communities and with your neighbors. There's the assumption that um, an undocumented immigrant looks a certain way or lives in a certain community. And again, it's not as if undocumented immigrants are gonna be walking around saying, hey, especially not now. Um, so you probably have people in your midst, on your campus, who you're working for or with who are undocumented. Um, trying to create a, a conversation with them or with other communities that they are connected to, I think is really important right now. You know, what Suave said to me today, which was just like, just knowing that there was one person who cared. And I was like, oh, that's so silly, just one person knowing that one person cares. On the other hand, <laughs> we're kind of at that point. So on big scale, big conversations around sanctuary policies, necessary, but on the human level, there's something else that needs to be happening because that, knowing that there's one person who's gonna be there to protect you, could be life-saving for some people, especially for immigrants now, who basically were reduced to literally just praying as we leave the door. Ay, por favor, Diosito, que no me encuentre con la policía ni con la migra hoy. That's what our, 
you know, relationship to law enforcement is, is just praying when we leave the house that we're not going to engage with the police or with, the, with immigration. And that is deeply sad. Thank you. Yes. I can reach this. There we go. Um, thank you for sharing this amazingly powerful information with us. It strikes me that not only is our government doing this, and at this point our government really doesn't care what we think, but more disturbing, there are individuals who are doing things like detaining a 10-year-old girl who needs medical care. This is not, it's not basic humanity. Can, can we pressure them even if we can't pressure our government? Is, is there a weak point there? Is that, is there anything? Well, I mean, look, part of what I'm trying to say is you guys need to figure out what you need to do and you need to do it. Don't ask me to tell you what to do. You need to do that. I mean, uh, thanks for the applause, but see, a lot of people are like, you know, and I love telling this to students, you know, Martin Luther King did not have a five-year strategic plan, you know? <laughs> he had a dream, right? And he didn't know what he was doing. He had a team of people and they were figuring it out. So all of you have to figure out what you need to be doing. Um, and I guess the thing that I wanted to say about sanctuary that I, I forgot to say, which is what has happened with this administration is that um, in terms of immigration and police, basically, is that they have been unleashed. They have been uncuffed. And so while you may have the policy, like even in New York City, where you have a policy of sanctuary, right, and a policy of no cooperation, you still have officers on that police department who want to cooperate with ICE and who want to get people detained and deported. And so all they have to do is make that call. They're not prohibited from making that call. So um, that's kind of what we're dealing with, which is like big, big policy issues. But also there are individuals, as you're saying, there are individuals who are making these decisions. You know, some of them are good and may resist make, making taking out, you know, doing what they're being told, but the majority, not the majority, but there are many who are going to, they've already said it publicly. This is what we've been wanting to do for the longest time. So again, think about your own circles. Think about who you know who may be working in immigration, you know, who may be connected to that. Think about the communities that you have who are close to you. I don't know, that Irish neighbor who is just, oh, so sweet that you don't realize is actually undocumented. Or that Canadian. Just saying, there have been, I, I have not been able to prove this, but you know, they, there have been moments where it's said that the largest number of undocumented people in our country are actually Canadians. Um, but they're not, you know, I, I, found, I found one Canadian in the detention camps that I visited, and she happened to be black. Um, so, so again, it's, it's uh, open your eyes and think about what you can do. And that's why, you know, again, I never knew that saying these words to Suave were gonna change his life, right? I didn't know that sending a Christmas card was gonna change his life. Um, I didn't know that the journalism that I do could impact people um, to such a degree that they often cry in my arms. I, I didn't know that. So all of us, the, the thing that we have to do now is act. I mean, I know you know that because you're here. Nine o'clock on a Thursday night when it's not raining. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. 
Um, I have a question since we're, um, I don't know, we're pretty close, if you know, we're pretty close to Tacoma, which is one of the, the biggest private detention center in this part of the country. Um, and talking about private detention centers and kind of their lobbyists and who they contribute to, have you done investigating into um, lobbyists and the GEO group donating to certain politicians and how that influences uh, the policies because they do have to get permission from local politicians uh, to expand and whatnot. Um, and also a second separate question, with DACA being ended and a lot of more people um, becoming vulnerable to this system, what do you foresee happening with that in Congress passing legislation um, in the following months or not? Um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm today, if you ask me about DACA, given what's just happening, I think it's gonna be very challenging. Um, and I think that's because this president and the Republicans are going to take any moment that they possibly can to equate what just happened with DACA, which has nothing to do, I mean, we already saw it. Um, Jefferson Beauregard Sessions, and I use his full name on purpose because Beauregard is the name of a Confederate general who he was named after. Um, you know, he did this when he announced uh, the rescinding of DACA. He was the first one who was saying, and they're stealing jobs, and they're making money, and they're not vetted, all of which is not true. Um, so, you know, I also like to point out um, a pox on both of their houses. Uh, President Barack Obama created DACA under pressure from dreamers um, who took, you know, who were increasing their pressure and their protests and took over his re-election campaign office in Denver. And it was after that that they realized they had to do something. It was a Band-Aid. Um, he, he always knew that. Um, and President Barack Obama, Obama and Department of Homeland Security Secretary Janet Napolitano oversaw the deportation of um, two million plus people. They have a lot to account for. Um, did that answer your question? Yeah, oh, the, then the, the part about we haven't done we haven't done investigative on that. Mm. We haven't done investigative. We're doing investigative on things that I can't tell you about. Okay. <laughs> but if you have an investigative angle. Mm -hmm. Please come and see me. Um, the good news is that the audience for Latino USA grew by 45% in the last year, right? Um, and, um, and so we're getting, we're getting support to do more investigative work. And so I am looking for whistleblowers. I am looking for people who have been on the inside who can talk to us. So please, if you have an investigative angle, please um, let me know. Um, and in fact, you can all take your phones out now, turn them on, and go to your podcast feed and subscribe to Latino USA and subscribe to In the Thick. So I don't see you all taking your phones out. <laughs> Thank you. She's like, I got it. That's the super new iPhone, too. It was like huge. Um, so, so we're working on investigative, not that particular one, but yes, I mean, the, the money angle of it, the, the, the ka-ching side of this mm -hmm. is huge. And, <clears throat> and money is, making, is being made hand over foot in terms of the private prison industries, which you can all look and see whether or not your, your own university is investing in. Thank you. Yes. Hi, um, I'm representing everyone up there. Not really, but I was up there. Uh, <laughs> so you were talking about detention centers being mainly privately owned. Are there any 
wholly federally yeah owned oh yeah 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 there are centers? there are there are many that are run by the federal government do yes. they have more stringent legal standards to which they hold their staff members no it's still they're not legally binding they're just a little bit more closely watched because they're run by the government but you know, the government sends in inspectors into these detention camps, and they always come out with, you know, a 10. Right. They just, so, so there's inspections that are going on, but they just always get raided with a 10. And again, you know, there was, um, whenever, when we were doing the front line, what we heard was that if you complained, you were threatened, or mistreated, or assaulted. So what is the impetus for people to come forward in any circumstance? Thank you. You're welcome. Yes. Yes, I, I wanted to know what the relationship is between ISIS and for-profit prisons. Do for-profit prison, uh, I mean the people that uh, manage the stocks and all that and had a tenfold increase just in last year, do they directly pay monies to various police? Oh, you mean ICE, not ISIS. You mean ICE. ICE okay, ISIS. not ISIS. <laughs> no, I meant... Not ISIS. Forget that. Yeah, the, what is the relationship between... The for-profit prisons... For-profit prison and industry. stock-holding companies, yes. right? And, asserted, and they tend to be Republican although you are just uh, talking about Barack Obama, which is a huge disappointment for me. Um, and Hillary Clinton actually got money from the private prison industry and then had to return it, so. Also, I just wonder if, I was trying to find out who really needs to be contacted and is totally obscure. It is totally obscure, you're yes. right. Um, so, um, I mean, again, it's, it, I don't want to be the one who's telling you what to do. Um, but certainly, um, Corrections Corporation of America, CCA, um, which is now, they changed their name to, oh, something so sweet, Core Civic. Core Civic. Um, you know, you, again, I, I'm, not gonna, I'm not in the business of telling people what to do, um, but the relationship between the private prison industry and ICE is a very profitable relationship for the private prison companies. Yes, but ICE is really a Homeland Security or are they volunteers? No, 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 it's Homeland Security. So ICE, yes, ICE was created as part of Homeland Security. See, before 9-11, it used to be INS, right? Immigration and Naturalization Service. Since 9-11 and ICE, it's Immigration and Customs Enforcement. See the difference? A service versus enforcement. So that just help, helps you understand the narrative. Yes. But I, will, I will write to your website because I would like to uh, contact some uh, senators or congressmen uh, directly because I don't, I'm not comfortable with just in, uh, living in such a vague environment. Right? Good, and you so should not be comfortable living in no. such a vague environment. And, and I think if enough people do that, uh, to force them to be accountable, because being nice to immigrants, I'm an immigrant myself, but as you can see, I have the correct skin color. 
And you have got the correct accent, too. <laughs> yes. Anyway, I think that's disgusting that I have to bank on that, right? Um, and I want to do something, so I'm going to write to you, but I would like contact people. I know the ACLU has, has taken some of these prisons uh, to task for slave labor. Yes. Yes, and one. But of course, we're still collecting the workers, so to speak. So I would say make contact here. Don't talk to me. Talk to your people here. Yes. Thank you. Besides, my email is really, oof. Uh, it's a disaster. You. Thank you for your question. Yes. Um, hi, everyone. My name is Karen Gomez. Um, Maria, first of all, I just want to thank you for being here. Um, I think things like this are very necessary. I have a lot of mixed feelings because as undocumented students, we're constantly saying these things and a lot of times we're not heard. And so thank you for being here because a lot of times we're not taken seriously unless someone like you comes here. And um, I guess... <laughs> it's okay. It happens a lot. I uh, I understand. It's a it's a lot of frustration, you know, also to the administration because last year, as a documented students, we faced a lot of harassment, and there was um, the Republicans of UW had a Facebook page, and they were asking like, oh, what should we do with undocumented students now that Trump is in office? And some students were suggesting that they send us to concentration camps and the administration did not do anything about that. So my question to you is how can institutions help undocumented students and how can we make them accountable? Because a lot of times we're speaking out and they're not actually supporting us and they're not being accountable. And like, of course, Seattle is a sanctuary city, but UW was never declared itself as sanctuary campus. And so just like a lot of things like that where of course, we take pride in diversity, but at the same time, it seems like they don't actually um, value us. So how, as you, like, what would you encourage the school to do as an institution, and how can they be accountable to us? Because a lot of times, we're, we feel like we're not getting that actual support. Like, yes, we have the Ethnic Cultural Center. Yes, we have the Leadership Without Borders Center, but the campus as a whole sometimes does not feel safe, and we face harassment, and those like students that do the harassment do not face any consequences. So just my, like, Question to you, thank you. Right, so thank you. <laughs> so you should know you're not alone. Um, you know, um, last week, two weeks ago, I don't remember, I was on the campus of New York University, which is in the village, which, you know, the village is kind of like where hippies started, it's like, a bastion of left radical thought. And on the campus of NYU, there was hate speech written um, about dreamers on the campus of New York University. So you are not alone. This is happening across all campuses. Um, and again, it's very hard for me to tell you what to do. Um, you know, the administration needs to listen to you. For all kinds of reasons, they need to listen to you. Um, and you must not be silent, but you also have to form your, your, your support team, right? So that you are not alone, um, and so you don't feel alone. And, you know, uh, it's complicated on the, you know, universities are feeling a lot of pressure, but 
that's what happens when you're on a university campus. Um, I mean, in the 1960s, the, the campus protests just didn't stop, right? So it's a different time right now, right? Campus protests are not taking over the campuses, but um, university administrations are trying to figure this out and they don't have the answers. And frankly, the only thing that I can tell you is to not be quiet and to find your allies on this campus and not just your friends, right? But your professors um, and others who you do feel heard by and work with them to create, to come up with a plan so that you feel heard and visible. Um, you know, again, it's, I don't have the answers. It's like, how can I tell you what to do on a campus when you're not feeling safe? It's what I tell my students, you know, at DePaul. I'm like, well, well, actually, what I tell them is I, I tell, <laughs> what I tell them is a little bit more um, specific, but I'll, I'll go ahead and, and I'm sorry if, if I'm taking what you're saying in a different direction, but, um, <laughs> So if it isn't for diverse student bodies and Latinos and immigrants, campuses like this won't have a future if it isn't for those students. So, so a lot of this is about the university's understanding, not just the immediate play right now, but the long-term play for them staying viable. And so they have to have the long-term view. And young people like you actually represent our future, right? Your children will then wanna to come to this campus because you will have said they heard me and they saw me. And you're gonna want them to come to your alma mater. So this is the long game for the campus to understand that, um, and by the way, I am one of those people, I am one of those people who is a fierce defender in the First Amendment. So I'm one of those people who I'm like, get, let's get up there and let's have the conversation. We're not gonna agree, but we're gonna do this and we're gonna do it respectfully. And um, you know, those of you who saw my famous um, viral moment, which by the way was great, but you know, you wake up the next day after you've gone viral and it's like, nothing's changed. Um, when I took on Steve Cortez on the issue of illegal is not a noun. Um, so Steve Cortez, who is a surrogate for the Trump administration, even after our viral moment, we became friends, right? I have breakfast with him. I try to understand him. Um, and even though we don't understand each other, I try to find a place of humanity. So, um, so your, your constant bringing of your humanity into the conversation is essential and don't let yourself be deterred. You also have to make a priority for self-care. However that looks for you, you have to make that a priority. Um, sometimes that self-care means crying, you know? Sometimes that just means that that's what's gonna happen. But we need to be strong. We really need to be strong. So yesterday was my 400th straight day of meditating. So, and I, I'm one of those people who I was like, I'll never be able to meditate. So that's a form of self-care and I just, again, whatever works for you, but thank you for owning your voice and for being vulnerable in front of all of us. I thank you very much.
I guess this means you're our last question. Yes, Thank last question. Thank you to that courageous, very courageous student. I'm so glad that we're here in Seattle. Uh, Maria, Maria, I just wanted to thank you um, and let you know that I hear Latino USA all the time. And the, what most moved me today out of your talk, I took a lot of notes, was the Senorita Quiere Agua. <laughs> because I think that what is not underlined, I'm a Chicana and my family uh, you know, has always lived across the borders, back and forth, the porosity of the border. And, but what I think people don't understand that you bring to light is the fact that we are blooming this nation and we are watering this nation and immigrants from everywhere are doing that. And I just thank you for giving voice and being here and being present and speaking about difficult issues. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, again, I just give it back to you. So thank you very much for coming out tonight. I'll see you. Remember, subscribe to Latino USA and In the Thick. And thank you so much for coming. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Maria Inahosa gave this talk, Testing the Limits of Due Process Denial, Latinos and Immigrants as the Canaries in the Mine, at the University of Washington's Kane Hall on November 1st, 2017. You can hear the full event on our website, kuow.org slash speakersforum. Tune in again soon.